Well, good morning, Harmony. Here in Danville and Burlington and Fort Madison, welcome. Now today, before we jump in, I want to let you know what you can expect next week, all right? A little sneak peek, if that's all right with you. You good with that? You're not going to want to miss it, I promise, because next week, you can expect to hear the greatest sermon in all of human history. I'm not kidding. Next week, right here, greatest sermon in all of human history. Now, it's not today, so... No amens, please. But next week, we're going to be jumping into our new sermon series, The Sermon on the Mount. See what I did there? Jesus' amazing sermon recorded, Matthew 5 through 7. I'm excited. I truly believe it's going to be one of those transformational series for our church and hopefully for each one of us as we really look at Jesus' call for us to live out our faith as citizens, not of this world, but of heaven. I'm excited for what the Lord's gonna do. Now, I do believe it's gonna be transformational, but there's two things required of us. First, all of that transformational stuff is the work of the Holy Spirit, but one, you gotta be here, all right? Come, join in. I know we're coming off of the busy summer season, but let's commit to coming every Sunday. Prioritize these times with your church family. So be here in two, really dive in. Let's dive deep together. The reading plan starts tomorrow. Pick it up, get in the word daily, come prepared, ready to, ready to learn, ready to grow, and most importantly, pray. Throughout the rest of this year, I just encourage you to pray that through Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, that the Lord would open your eyes and ears to hear the good news, to really dive deep into the greatest sermon in all of human history and what the Lord might have for you. All right, I've sufficiently built up next week, but we're here today, so let's get after it. We've got for ourselves a great and honestly a challenging passage this morning. We're gonna be wrapping up our sermon series on First and Second Samuel, No King But Jesus. I've enjoyed the ride. It's been quite the journey. We've been following around kind of three key individuals, right? Samuel, Saul, and David. Samuel was this great leader, He was a prophet, a priest, and a judge. And then Saul, this at first very promising king, but his pride gets the best of him. And we saw how God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. And then David, this unlikely shepherd boy that God chooses to be king, a man after God's own heart, but even David. As promising as he looked, he stumbles, he falls short, and we've been reminded week in and week out that there really is no king but Jesus. Now, if you've been tracking along with us closely, you'll know we have four chapters left to cover, 2 Samuel 21 through 24. Today, we're just gonna look in detail at chapter 24, the very last chapter. But let me set it up quickly as you make your way there in your Bibles this morning. You see, these last four chapters, if you've been reading along, kind of getting ahead, following the reading plan, at first glance, you might have thought, man, this is... It's like a hodgepodge of stories. It doesn't really make sense at first glance, but I assure you there's some very intentional things going on in these last four chapters. In fact, they are organized symmetrically, which is a a mechanism that's used in a lot of Hebrew literature. It's prevalent. And so let me be a nerd just for one second and follow along with me as you make your way to 2 Samuel 24. You see, the first chapter, chapter 21, it covers a sin of of King David. 
or King Saul, I'm sorry. And King Saul's sin from the past, it must be atoned for. It's got to be paid for. Chapter 21 continues with these stories of great military victories. We, in fact, learn that four more giants like Goliath are slain. And then chapter 22, we get this amazing psalm of praise, not in the book of Psalms, chapter 22 of 2 Samuel, this beautiful psalm of David that looks back on God's past deliverance. It's a great psalm of praise. But then the symmetry begins as we move to chapter 23. It starts working back the other way. We get another psalm of David, but this psalm looks forward to God's future promises. And then chapter 23 continues, and we get more military victories. These ones from David's mighty men. And then chapter 24, our passage today, another account of sin by the king that must be atoned for. But this time, it's King David's sin. So sin of Saul, military victories, Psalm looking back, Psalm looking forward, more military victories, and the sin of David. And so although these closing chapters seem kind of like an appendix at first, they provide, in my opinion, a perfect close to these books. You see, they remind us first that these human kings haven't come through. But then they they point us forward and remind us that, that God is there helping victory for his people over their enemies And then kind of the the center point of that symmetry, it beckons us to remember God's past deliverances, what he's done, his faithfulness, but then also look forward to his future promises and specifically to look forward to a king who's not gonna stumble, who's never gonna let us down, who's worthy of all praise and honor and glory, whose kingdom will never end. To look forward to King Jesus who we come here Sunday mornings to sing praises to. I think it's a great picture of what First and Second Samuel have been all about. And so now let's zoom in to Second Samuel 24, the final chapter. And we're gonna look at this chapter in, in three sections and then we'll close with some applications. So first, Second Samuel 24, we're gonna cover verses one through 10. Here's what the Lord's word says. Again, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord, the king, delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed over Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to Gadesh and the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan and from Dan they went across to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and all and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. 
for I have done very foolishly. All right, so we have a census. That seems innocent enough, right? But there's clearly a lot going on here. I'm guessing for me, if it's for you, that first verse really stood out as it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them. So God is angry with Israel about something. We don't know what exactly. Now, perhaps the fact that a ton of them had sided with Absalom to overthrow David, as we heard about last week, is a possibility, or I imagine several other reasons. Israel, as a nation, probably had just a few issues. Think of our own nation. I'm sure that some of us could come up with something that might cause the anger of the Lord to be kindled against us, too. But you see, the specifics here are apparently not too important. We just learned that the Lord is angry with Israel. So what's next? Well, apparently a census. David's going to count the people, the natural next step from anger. I thought that was a little crazy and I thought more about it and then I realized, you know what? This has to be the root of the popular advice of how to deal with your anger. You know what I'm talking about, right? If you get angry, you take a deep breath and you count to 10. You guys are in it today. Well, God's ways are way higher than ours, right? So perhaps he's got to count a little little bit higher. So we do a census. There's your application this morning. If you get angry, count. You know, you can really expand on application sometimes, so let's keep going. If you can't sleep, count sheep. You know, if you're feeling a little blue, you're feeling a little down, well, count your blessings. There it is, the secret. You just got to figure out what the right thing to count is for your given situation, right? All right, I'm just kidding. I don't mean any of that. If you like counting, go at it. But this seems kind of unusual, right? We don't have all the information of what's going on here. God's angry. He incites David to take a census. And then in verse 10, we learn that David sinned taking that same census. So this seems like a problem. In fact, David, David or God's anger incites David to do something that ends up being a sin. That doesn't seem quite right. Now, 1 Chronicles 21 is a a parallel passage to our story. It records the exact same event, but it provides some additional insight, some additional language, and it, it actually starts differently. It begins this way. It says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So 2 Samuel, we have God inciting David. And then 1 Chronicles, we have Satan inciting David. So what's right, what's wrong, what's going on? Well, there's your homework for the week. All right, let's keep going. I'm just kidding a little bit. I would think about it. But I would argue that both are right. You see, God's word doesn't contradict itself. God's word is always true. And in fact, this is one of a few instances in God's word, like in the Garden of Eden or in the book of Job, where Satan is specifically named as acting against God's people. But God allows it. See, I like Warren Wearsby's explanation. He writes this, God permitted Satan to tempt David in order to accomplish accomplish the purposes he had in mind. So God permitted Satan to tempt David in order to accomplish his purposes. This is a difficult theological truth, but a very important one. 
You see, God often allows sin to occur, bad things to happen to accomplish his great purposes. I know that's a tough and challenging reality, but let's consider the cross, the greatest example of this truth, a horrible sin that God allowed, the the murder of the only innocent human that's ever walked this earth, yet it accomplished God's great purpose of redemption. It accomplished our salvation by God allowing that horrific crucifixion. You see, we all struggle with hard things. We, we want answers for life's big difficulties. We want to know the why. But so often in all of those things, God's just asking us to learn to trust his goodness. Trust that he is good. That his purposes are for us and not against us. So let's get back to what's happening here. Israel's sin, they've rebelled against God. We don't really know exactly how. And his righteous anger is kindled against them. And so sin against God rightly deserves God's wrath. That's the simple point here. So God allows Satan to tempt David to take a census, which also ends up being sinful, to accomplish his purposes. Which are not clear at this point either. Now, David in this situation, the the sinfulness of David's census is also not explicitly stated. Our text hasn't given us a lot of clear information this morning. You see, taking a census, right, in and of itself is not a sin. The book of Exodus actually gives instructions on how to do it. And and so perhaps David did it incorrectly. He he missed a step. Maybe some of you husbands out there, like when you get a a cabinet or something, you got to build it. You don't need the instructions. You just kind of do it. And there's a few screws left over. Some of us have a few screws loose. But, but, but nonetheless, we're not quite sure. Perhaps it's David's heart and his motivation is sinful. It's unclear. Now, I do think the best explanation for the sinfulness of David's census is that he was probably motivated by pride. If we look closely at the end of verse 9 there, it says David only counts the, the valiant men who drew the sword. He's only counting his military might. Perhaps he's wanting to know how strong and how mighty his kingdom has become at the end of his life here. Which I think we've seen throughout First and Second Samuel, that's never God's measure of strength. And God opposes the proud. But no matter the specific reason, the point is the same. Sin against God rightly deserves God's wrath. And David's committed a great sin along with Israel, which is going to result in God's judgment. And as I said, God allows sin at times to accomplish his purposes, but God does not cause anyone to sin. He may allow Satan to tempt us. We may be tempted by our flesh of worldly things. We give in to temptation, but it's no one's fault but our own. Thus, we're still responsible, culpable for our sin. And regardless of the specifics of these kinds of situations, of our own sins and struggles, we're to look to God. We're to trust in him. We've got to know that he's sovereign over every situation, that God's in fact working it all out for his glory and the good of his people. He's doing that today in each of our lives. We sin, we stumble, we give in to temptation, we rebel against God, yet God graciously and lovingly uses those things 
even when we don't see it, we may never even see it in the lives, we don't get it, we don't understand it, but he's using those things for our good and for his glory. It's a beautiful truth, but it's a tough truth to live in day in and day out. And despite all that, it doesn't mean, though, that sin doesn't have consequences, as we'll see. The king sinned greatly, and that sin deserves punishment. Most of us know it, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. God's wrath, his righteous justice against sin and rebellion must be satisfied. It's really a horrifying truth. Now, that does not mean God isn't going to work in and through it. So let's continue and see what happens next. Second Samuel, let's pick up in verse 11. David just realized his sin, his foolishness. And it says this. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to, de to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And so here we see that the wrath of God is at hand and God's judgment is poured out. It's interesting, I think, that God gives David three options. It seems a bit harsh. What will you choose, door number one, door number two, or door number three? They're all horrible. But yet, that's what happens. And if you were to look back in Deuteronomy 28, you'd actually find that all three of those punishments are clearly included in the curses for disobedience that God warned his people about if they were to sin and rebel against their covenant together, the promises he made them. In so many ways here, as harsh as it sounds, as God is just being true to his word. David doesn't appear to directly decide right from the options, but three days of pestilence or a plague, in other words, is, is in the land as the winner. The Lord's judgment poured out against the sin of David and the sins of Israel and 70,000 men die. It's tragic, it's alarming, it's a horrifying display of God's wrath, his justice against sin, but yet... In the middle of it, if we look closely, we get a glimpse of God's mercy. I want to walk through the end of this section, verses 14 through 17, as I think these are the critical verses in our passage. I love how commentator Dale Ralph Davis summarized this section. He, he sees this section, believe it or not, this way. Wrath wrapped in mercy. God's wrath wrapped in God's mercy. So let's look at it. Verse 14 again. 
Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So here David appeals to God's mercy. Despite God's declared judgment, the wrath that is coming, David trusts God. He trusts his life in the hands of the Lord whose mercy is great. He's seen it, he knows it. At the same time, he knows he sinned, he just confessed. And he knows God is merciful. You see, after many sins and stumbles, I think throughout David's life, it seems he's finally learned that the, the safest and the best place to be, regardless of how difficult, regardless of what he deserves, is in the hands of the good, merciful, and just God trusting his steadfast love and mercy. And so on the brink of impending judgment, God's wrath staring him in the face, the king trusts God. He'd rather be in God's hands than anyone else's. Oh, let me fall in the Lord's hands, not the hands of man. You see, on the eve of God's wrath being poured out, David responds in faith. Maybe we summarize it like this. And he's crying out and he's saying, Lord, I I trust in your great mercy. I trust your plan. Or perhaps another famous line from a shepherd king facing God's wrath. Not my will be done, but yours be done. You see, David trusts God and he's pointing us forward. Let's continue. Verse 15 and 16. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. David appeals to God's mercy and then we have God's wrath poured out in the form of a plague and 70,000 men die. And as hard as that sounds, it doesn't seem, though, like the whole cup of wrath is poured out. The original option was for the pestilence to go on for three days. And so if the three days were over it, you would imagine it just stopped. But instead, it seems to have stalled. God's wrath was sweeping the land, but when it approaches Jerusalem, the Lord relents. He says to the angel of destruction, it's enough. Now stay your hand. Now it doesn't say that God is done. It doesn't say his wrath is satisfied. It just says, stay your hand. And so God's wrath is put on pause. And then we get verse 17, this amazing verse. It says, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. You see, God opens David's eyes to see this angel of destruction that is wreaking havoc, this pestilence, this plague. And David cries out, the king, God's anointed king, whose kingdom shall never end. That's the promise. He cries out essentially and says, strike me instead. The king steps in willing to sacrifice himself to save his people. The shepherd king offers his life to save his sheep. 
You see, brothers and sisters, beside this is a sobering reality of this passage. God's judgment being poured out, this wrath wrapped in mercy. It's screaming to us this morning, Jesus. We can't make this stuff up. This passage makes clear our sins deserve God's wrath, his judgment. But perhaps in God's mercy, a shepherd might lay down his life for his sheep might step in and take God's wrath. A story from a thousand plus years before Christ is telling us what must be done to atone for our sins, to satisfy the righteous wrath of God, to reconcile us to God. The shepherd king must lay down his life for his sheep. Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, must pay the ultimate price for his people, become a substitutionary sacrifice in our place and take God's wrath. In our passage, David's sacrificial offer to take God's wrath for his people, it's it's sincere. I believe it's saturated with genuine repentance. It's a plea for God's mercy. David trusts God. It's almost there, but the problem is David's guilty. You see, David is a sinner. He needs a savior also. His sacrifice wouldn't have redeemed anyone because he actually deserves to die. He sinned against God Almighty. And so God in his mercy instead stays the hand, doesn't in this case accept David as a sacrifice, but he provides a way. In this case, a temporary way that points us forward hoping for that ultimate way. A sacrifice that will actually pay for our sins once and for all. That doesn't need to be stayed, doesn't need to be pushed off, but will atone and reconcile us to God. So let's finish our passage and see what happens. Second Samuel 18 through 25 of chapter 24. So David had just confessed, offered his sacrifice, and it says, and Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. That's where the plague had stopped. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded, and when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to save to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. There it is, God's wrath is averted. God responds to David's plea for the land. He builds an altar, offers a sacrifice to the Lord. David here is acting as a a mediator for God's people and himself. He's taking a priestly role, offering an atoning sacrifice, just like the law would call for. A, A peace offering to the Lord to make atonement for their sins. I know I've been using the word atonement a lot. Atonement in its simplest form means to right a wrong. Israel, David, had sinned, and that wrong needs to be righted somehow. 
The punishment needs to be temporarily satisfied, at least pushed off. And so despite David's sin, despite all of that, he trusted in God's mercy and God made a way to make peace, to atone for those wrongdoings through an offering. And there it is, our books. First and second Samuel end that quickly, just like that. See, after all these amazing things we've read and studied in First and Second Samuel, all these promises that in many ways were, were building up to, to King David, the great anointed king chosen by God, a man after God's own heart whose kingdom will never end, we find him at the end of the book having to offer a sacrifice because of his sin. I don't know about you, but that leaves me a little unsatisfied. It leaves me wanting more. Is this really all that there is? You see, that's the, that's the point. David's been a great king. He's did some great things, but he's not the king that we are to put our hope in. His story in this book leaves us looking forward to a better king, a king that isn't gonna let us down, a king that doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, but instead, like David tried, offers himself as a sacrifice for his sheep for everyone who believes, a once and for all sacrifice. A sacrifice that doesn't just pause or push back God's wrath and God's patience, but one that fully satisfies God's wrath for all those who trust in him. You see, there's no king but Jesus because there's no sacrifice but Christ. He's the king who became for his people sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God makes a way to atone for sin, to restore our relationships with him, to satisfy the just wrath of God that we all deserve, not by a burnt offering or a peace offering, but the once and for all offering, the perfect spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that as each and every single one of us look God's judgment and wrath in the face because of our sins, which by the way, we're all gonna have to do that someday. You know that, right? Someday we're gonna stand before the throne of God and he's gonna judge us. And the question is, what are we gonna say? And that's what I love about our passage, right? King David's done a ton of things. He could have stood up there right and said, I, I slayed Goliath. I never put my hand out against Saul, the anointed. I tried to do everything you could. I made a couple mistakes, but I even confessed for those. Like, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm your king. I'm your anointed one. You chose me. But that's not what David says, right? Facing God's judgment, he says, let my, let my life fall on your hands. Your mercy's great. I got nothing, but you've got everything. And so brothers and sisters, we need to cling to that same hope. We need to be able to stand before the Lord someday and say, let me not, let me fall into your hands, Lord. Your mercy's great. God's wrath is wrapped in God's mercy. And it all culminates in the shepherd king who graciously laid down his life for his flock. For all those who place their faith in him, God's wrath's paid, fully covered by Christ's sacrifice. That's the good news. That's why we gather here on Sundays to sing songs of praise. Let's close this morning with two application points. First, I wanna talk about a truth that we need to embrace. We need to fix our eyes on it daily. We must first hope 
in God's mercy. Hope in God's mercy. I know that's more of a perspective. It's a way of life. It's a view of the world, but it's one that as believers we must have. We must learn to be like David in this way. We must learn to trust our lives in God's hands and trust in his great mercy. And not just when we sin, not just when we stumble, but every day in every circumstance, looking forward and hoping in God's amazing grace, his mercy. Let it saturate our hearts and minds. Let it be what we're all about. Believing passages like Lamentations 3, 22 through 23, which says this, says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We declare that every day to ourselves, to our brothers and sisters around us, to unbelievers in your life that have no hope, that are searching for truth, let them know that God's love never ceases, that no matter what they've done in their life, his mercy never ends, that there's a way out of the darkness. Sometimes we call this preaching the gospel to yourself daily. Hope in God's mercy daily, his promises. Harmony, let's be a people who have a great hope in God's great mercy. And so when life throws you a curveball, difficulties are on the horizons, when you don't or can't seem to find an answer, when that job doesn't come through, maybe you got fired. I literally got two flat tires yesterday. That was a great Saturday. Or maybe you get a medical report that comes back. Or even on the flip side, you do get the promotion. Something awesome happens. The love of your life says, yes, I do. Stuff happens that's amazing or stuff happens that's a struggle. In both cases, just trust and hope in God's mercy. Cry out to him in his mercy or cry out to him in praise for his mercy. His mercy is great. Think about it every single day. Brothers and sisters, it's new every morning. It never gets old. Second, having fixed our eyes on that hope, we must take the next step and live like it. Follow in Christ's sacrifice. Hope in his great mercy, but then follow in his sacrifice. So here, I want to end by getting a bit more practical. We've got to hope in God's mercy and grace. That must be first. We can't overlook it. We can't forget about it. Otherwise, this second application point quickly turns into legalism or sitting there feeling like you must earn God's mercy. You can't. But in God's mercy, in God's grace, we're called to respond to it by following Christ, following in his sacrifice. You see, my favorite part of our passage this morning comes in the middle of verse 24. Aruna, right, he's trying to give David everything he needs for the sacrifice, trying to give it all to him for free, right? David's the king after all. Aruna's probably like not blind. It's like, hey, 70,000 people died. Whatever you need, just take it, just take it. And yet David says, no, I can't just take it. I will not offer a sacrifice to the Lord, my God, that costs me nothing. I won't offer a sacrifice that costs me nothing. That's the perspective we need to let sink into our hearts. You see, David was willing to offer himself, his life, everything to save his people from the wrath of God. But he couldn't do it, and Christ did. Christ offered everything when he hung on the cross 
was despised, rejected. Basically became lower than man. All so that others might be saved, might be reconciled, redeemed to God. And so what are you willing to sacrifice so that someone might be saved? Now we've got to be extra careful here. Christ's sacrifice for us is free. Don't hear this the wrong way. We can't miss that. There's nothing you can offer. There's nothing you can sacrifice in your life that's going to save yourself. Only the free gift of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why it says in Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being saved. Jesus' sacrifice was the once and for all offering where he offered everything for others so that they might be saved by grace through faith in him. That sacrifice we need is done, it's finished. Praise God. No sacrifice you make will change that. But we can and we are called to sacrifice for others. We follow in Christ's sacrifice not to save ourselves, but so that others might know him. So that others might experience his love and his great mercy. We sacrifice so that others might know the sacrifice. Encouraging one another, but most importantly, being salt and light to those who don't know Jesus. Receiving those new mercies every morning. And then sending them out to be a blessing to others so they might know him. Otherwise, friends, and I almost didn't say this, but please hear this with grace. If we're not willing to do that, we might as well all die the second we accept Christ. I know that sounds harsh, but that'd be better, right? All right, I'm in the kingdom. The easiest thing for me is to go to be with the king. I'm done, finito. Just take me now. But God's purposes are higher. His plan is better. He has something for each of us to do. We don't just accept Christ and die. That's not his plan. We're to go on living. We have new life in him. But we're not to go on living for ourselves. We're to go on living for Christ so that others might know him. This is, why Paul, this is what Paul means by to live as Christ and to die as gain. So our application, following Christ's sacrifice, it's actually an all-consuming way of life that we're to pursue every single day. Receiving his mercy new every morning and then constantly pursuing him, sacrificing, being a living sacrifice so that others might know him. And we're gonna constantly come up short. But there's grace. There's mercy. It's great. But we gotta take a step. Pick up your cross daily. Maybe just pick up a little bit more of it tomorrow. And maybe this week for some of us, we just need to decide if we're really all in with Jesus. And if you really do trust your life in his hands and if you genuinely trust in Christ, you're saved. Praise God, it's done, it's finished. I'm not trying to make you doubt. Please don't hear that. But what I am asking and what I have been convicted of personally and what I believe our text is pointing us to is given the amazing truth If you are in this room and you've accepted Christ, he died for you. He paid the ultimate price so that you don't have to. And so given that amazing grace that should well up with us, he gives us purpose for his life and that's to make him known, to be his hands and feet. And so have we counted the cost of what it means to live as his disciple, to live to follow Jesus, to live to follow him in his sacrifice, a living sacrifice for God's kingdom? 
The great poet says it this way, dying is easy, son, living is harder. It's not easy. We have each other. Let's live together for Christ. So I just encourage you to take this week, meditate on and rest in the hope of God's great mercy, first and foremost. That's our rock. That's our foundation. That's where our deliverance is. If you don't feel overwhelmed and wrapped in God's mercy, start there. Just rest in it. Ask him to show you his love. And then think and pray about what your life specifically might look like. What God might be calling you to as you seek to follow Christ. Making sacrifices in your life. And practically that looks like making conscious decisions with how you spend your time, your treasure, your talents, the gifts, the blessing that God has given you. He's given you those for a reason so that others might know him. Investing everything you have into God's kingdom. And as I said, friends, don't try to do it alone. The Holy Spirit's with you. That's the beauty of the Great Commission. We're to go out and make disciples resting in God's great mercy. And it says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You have the Holy Spirit. He's with you. And on top of that, you have each other. We're a family. Brothers and sisters in the Lord here to spur each other on so that we might be a living sacrifice together for one another and for those in our community right now that do not know the love of Christ. They have no hope when they stand before God's judgment and for God's wrath. So let's point them to how God's wrath is actually wrapped in his great mercy. Let's point them to the great mercy that covers us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ.